is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Ladies and gentlemen, we have another record. I knew that it was going to make good money, but yeah, that just sort of yeah blew us all out of the water. And this one's a doozy, an old furfy water cart that was sitting out in the weather in a paddock near Beechworth has made... $61,300. Find out why people paid so much for the water cut later on in the program. And imagine buying anything from the supermarket and seeing this label. I wish that each label of food had a pie chart and explained the slivers, how big the sliver is for each uh, component of the food chain that worked to get that loaf of bread on the shelf and into someone's grocery cart. A pie chart explaining who's getting what from a loaf of bread. The farmer, the transport operator, the supermarket, any other middlemen. Do you think that would work? Is it a good idea? We'll hear from the Canadian farmers on our program later today. You can call and tell me if you think it would work. 1300 977 is the number. 1300 977 You can text as well. 0467 842 Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Annie Plummer today. Annie. Good afternoon, Warwick. As Victorian farmers count losses after a hailstorm ripped through crops, Western Australian farmers are doing the same. Some farmers in the Esperance region, about 700 kilometres southeast of Perth, may have almost lost entire canola paddocks in the hailstorm that ripped through on Friday afternoon. Michael Hart farms at Dalyup just west of Esperance, and says he's never seen or heard a storm like it. It's the first time it's ever happened, and I know it happens to lots of people all the time. Like Probably somebody in your district every year gets hit with a hailstorm. I've heard about people having 100% losses, but I've never never experienced it, even on one a paddock basis. I have two fields that I'm pretty sure my son's going to put the harvester into the paddock um, this morning and do it up and back and see if there's any grain out there. I can, I can find single pods on canola crops. And I can't find, you know, areas where there's, you know, low percentage losses. A unique shipping service linking Tasmania directly with New Zealand has begun freighting agricultural products. Normally goods would have to go through the mainland to get transferred to a new container for export to New Zealand. But a direct link has changed that. A boat run by a New Zealand company is now carrying about 5,000 tonnes of products between the Kiwis and the Apple Isle. David White, Managing Director of Bioma, a fish feed company on the northwest coast, says it's a game changer. Well, look, it's, at, the, at the moment it will save them probably somewhere around about $40 a tonne to do it that way. The, the farmers and us, about $40 a tonne, um, which is a really, really important saving for, for them. It was a little bit organic, you know, in the sense that it, it, it arose, the opportunity arose and was defined over time with a number of different, in a number of different conversations. So we're confident after we announced it, uh, following the the, prem, the trade uh, delegation to New Zealand, um, we're we're quite confident from the feedback we got after that announcement that there are a few other Tasmanian businesses that are already looking at utilising that vessel. New chair of the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Australia grew up using the services of the organisation in Outback Australia. Tracy Hayes from the Northern Territory is the former CEO of NT's Cattlemen Association and has been involved in the cattle industry around Central Australia for decades, has just stepped into the role. 
She says her son needed to use the flying doctor just six months ago and it highlights for her the need to look at the services the organisation provides. Probably lived and breathed this stuff for many years and have a really strong understanding of, of what we need out in rural and regional areas and what we continue to need. Um, you know, there's a growing demand, I think, in the delivery of primary health care services um, out on the ground. It's, it's no surprise that it's very, very difficult to get GP clinics in, in um, rural and remote towns and the ever-growing uh, need um, for mental health care um, out in the bush. So they're just a couple off the top of my head that, um, of course, are, are very prominent on our um, list of areas that we're keen to focus on. The Ord Valley in far north Western Australia is known for producing high-quality mangoes, bananas and watermelons. But jackfruit could be the next big crop for the region. The tropical fruit, which can grow up to 20 kilos, is being trialled in Kananara and Carnivan. But there are only a few farmers growing it commercially in the north. Grower Beck McMillan is one of them and says that growing the world's largest fruit tree is a big learning experience. Yeah, so there's certainly challenges growing jackfruit and, you know, certain varieties of jackfruit. It's quite an art form to, to figure out when they're right because it's all anecdotal and it's, um, you know, some people say it's when the last leaf turns yellow. Some people say it's when you can hear a different sound in the fruit when you tap it. Some people say it's when the, the spikes flatten out. But so far we have not figured out either method is better than the other and... Um, you know, you'll get a really spiky fruit and you'll open it up and it's perfectly ripe or, um, you know, the, that last leaf has turned yellow and it's a really unripe fruit. So it's, it's very much an art form and um, a lot of learning. And for today, that's Rural News. Thanks very much for that. Annie, Annie Plummer there with Rural News. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Now, I hope you've been baking a cake. It's a very important anniversary today, that being 10 years since the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was signed into law. We'll have a look at that later on in the program. Key speech is going to be made whilst we're on air today. Uh, Kath Sullivan will join you shortly to talk about that. Before we get there, though, let's pick up where we were speaking yesterday on the program. Imagine being caught in a hailstorm that not only smashes the window of your vehicle, but showers you in glass and hail and... Leaves you thinking your life could be on the line. It all sounds a bit surreal, but that's exactly what happened to Speed Farmer Phil Down at the weekend. And Angus Furley spoke to him about the hair-raising experience. I saw the storm approaching me. I thought, oh, well, it'd be, it'd be nothing much. It'd be a bit of rain and drove through and it just hit as hard as I've ever seen and, and had no, nowhere to get out. I thought, gee, I better find a shed here somewhere to get undercover, but couldn't get out in time. So I just went to the side of the road and thought, I better, I better sit this one out. Next thing, it just pommeled the roof, like, and the bonnet and the side. And, like, I've never, never experienced anything like it. And the front windscreen held on, but the the driver's side window, it collapsed all over me. So I wore a fair bit of glass and hail and rain. And I was going to go into a bit of survival mode. And uh, I had my uh, trusty CFA bag full of, full of my CFA equipment in the back seat so I grabbed that and jammed it in the driver's side window to protect myself my head mostly as the as the hail was coming in horizontally and and sharp jagged um, hailstones so anyway I wore it out sat it out and uh, finished 
inspected the ute, and I well, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It sounds surreal. Were you, were you in a bit of shock as to what was actually going on? Yeah, it definitely was. I was a bit rattled, for sure. I had, I had phone calls happening while it was going on. I'm actually thinking now, gee, I should have videoed that, but I was too busy hanging on to things, and, and my phone did get moisture in it. from it, The rain was coming in, and I had about an inch of rain on the floor of the ute and all over everything, so yeah, I sort of didn't think too straight until after. Well, wow, that was that was an experience, but yeah, it definitely rattled me for, for a while, and... Uh, Still looking at it now, I think, wow, that was that was experience. The more I think about it, absolutely you wouldn't want to be out in it. If you were caught on a push bike or going for a walk, I really would question how you would have survived it. It was it was the most severe thing I've ever seen. And I've got some pictures here your neighbour sent of your ute, and it genuinely looks like you've just driven past a, a barrage of machine gun fire. That's right. I'd say it's like a, a gang has jumped on top of me with ball-peen hammers. So it's, I've just taken it to the local panel readers and, uh, and it's, been, it's just been written off. But he, he said it's the most severe hail damage he's ever seen. Anyway, it's one for the, one for the record books and the story. But the poor old Ute, I think it's seen its days and uh, I'd say it saved my life, though. That sounds genuinely the case, Phil. As you say, if, if you'd been caught out in it and exposed, well, you'd hate to think what would have happened. Yeah, so anyway, and, and the houses, the houses all around have got damaged walls, windows and, and roofs, so, and the crops are pretty much right where I was there, 100% flattened on the ground as if, as if somebody's run over them with a, a lawnmower, a prickle chain and a mob of sheep. Has anyone seen hail damage like that before where it's wiped out 100% of a paddock like that? No, I, I certainly haven't. I've heard stories about 100%, but this is certainly 100%. You cannot find one grain standing. It, it is absolutely all on the ground. And, and Phil, I, I'm sure that that experience being trapped in your ute, glass showering down over you and then hailstones, I'm sure that's going to stick with you and probably be something you, a story you're telling for many years to come. Yeah, I'm trying to show people my ute because it's it's something you just can't believe until you see it. And even the photos don't do it justice. It's, it's quite remarkable. Just the power of those, those hailstones, I'd, I'd say it's, uh, yeah, it's really hard to stimulate other than if you, if you laid into it with a hammer. But there'd be, there'd be uh, without exaggeration, four or five hundred hail dents that are, are probably 20 mil deep. It's extreme. Every panel is completely damaged. Yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's my story. That's speed farmer Phil Down who got caught in the weekend hailstorm that smashed his driver's side window, showering him in glass and hail and rain. It's quite extraordinary to see those photos. They're up around a lot of the ABC stories online. You can have a look, abc.net.au slash rural. Yeah, not somewhere where you would have wanted to be. And yeah, the ute really hasn't survived it, has it? It's 16 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Let's talk about farmers along the Murray who are watching their hard work to keep crops dry literally wash away when levees protecting their properties fail. The small southern New South Wales town of Mullamine, we were speaking about a bit yesterday, it's still under significant flooding pressure and will be for some time, with roads in almost every direction shut and in some cases those roads washing away. That's where a levee failed at agronomist Alina Berger's family property and I had a chat to her earlier today. 
The water's been high there for a couple of weeks now, so that usually they've been monitoring the banks the whole time and we've been moving hay around to sand hills in case the banks did go so that the sheep could go to the sand hills and be fed. Um, our sheds go under if um, the banks break. So moving all the chemical and everything out of the shed to high ground and moving fertiliser silos and that's just been flat out on the excavator basically just trying to hold it. And then the uh, and then finally the the levee banks gave way. What happened? They were actually further out on another bloke's property, but it broke on the edge of sort of our property in there. So it flooded all mum and dad's, uh, all the family farm's front area, and it takes about a day and a half, two days to come uh, back around and sort of surround their sand hill where their house is. So, yeah, it's probably only just getting there this morning or it'll get there this afternoon, but, yeah. And the the site, it's like a torrent of water coming through there where it's given way. I've had a few people comment, I've never seen a break that big. I'm like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, no, it was just the wind yesterday was shocking and the day before it had been working on it as well. So once it blew, it, yeah, it was just gone. So what happens so, when a levee banks, uh, breaks that's protecting property like your family's property what happens then well it just works its way around and um covers most of the property there's a few sand hills so our rice ground yesterday like our rice paddock yesterday uh you could no longer see the bank so it does fill up rather quickly i think that would mean it probably had two foot of water over it pretty quickly so um most of it will have probably somewhere between one to four foot of water over it so and then it sort of stays in there for weeks so all the sheep feed uh lucky they didn't have any cereals in but all of that just would be ruined if it went over that yeah so every bit of grass or every bit of land the water's going to cover whatever's underneath it isn't going to survive no no that must be enormously frustrating now, obviously being at the start of that after having the levees hold for so long, but now looking at, at weeks of the water sitting there. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they um, are actually cut off from anywhere. They're stuck in there at the moment. So, um, And because there's so many other places where the roads cut around, up around Mullamine, even if they got out of there, they can't really go very far anyway. So... Um, for us to get back in there now, we have to. We'd have to boat in there. So yeah. And how are your parents doing? Well, they were prepared. They'd gone and done their three weeks worth of shopping um, prior to that, so they got the pantry full. Actually, in, in a way, I know it sounds terrible, but almost there's almost a relief to some extent because of the stress of running around and checking banks and making sure they're holding. And, and in a way, it's sort of a little bit of that comes off. I know that sounds bad because you've just lost your farm, but the stress does come off a little bit. And the house is going to be high and dry on that sand hill? Yep, the house will be fine. So they'll be fine. They're, their biggest problem now is um, the transformer for their, like for the power is only an inch or two above water and, if the water rises into that, that's it for their power. So that's when it'll that's when it'll become really complicated for them. Yeah, I I bet too. And as you say, it's in your part of the world. We're not talking about a couple of days here, are we? 
No, no. Like that water will be there for, well, Denny hasn't peaked yet, so, um, you know, it's probably two weeks off being at the full height probably. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a bit of waiting yet. So it is spread further to the community as well. Like as of yesterday, the buses stopped running to Mullamine. Um, so I imagine the school's closed. Our kids, we live in Barham. Our kids actually go to Kerrang. And the school was closed there for two weeks, but my kids have actually been home at five for five weeks because they can't get to Kareen. So, you know, it is very widespread, and so uh, yeah, it's affecting everybody. Not not just the farmers, but it is affecting everybody. Geez, how how are the kids feeling about being cut off from school for so long? Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, one of them's in year eleven, and she's loving it. But I'd rather she wasn't loving it. <laughs> And the other one's in year eight um, and she's pretty keen to get back to school and, you know, see friends and that sort of stuff again. So, yeah. Thanks very much for for telling us really about the situation at your parents' place. I'd imagine it's not easy when levies are breaking and and decisions have to be made. But um, but thanks very much for taking us there today. That's no worries. Elena Berger speaking to you there about the situation on the family farm at Moulamine, but also about the wider community impacts as well. She's an agronomist with BRNC as well out of Barham, as you heard. You're listening to The Country. I will stay in that sort of general region at the moment because flooded properties in northern Victoria are a long way from filming the ceremony surrounding the Queen's death in England, but that's where one UK resident has found himself. When Will Caddy heard his family's farm at Kerrang East was under threat, he jumped on a plane from the UK and came back to help. And he spoke to Kelly Hollingworth about the change from a day job to trying to save the family property. I run a uh, uh, TV and video production company in the UK. One of the last jobs I was doing before I had to come over here was the Queen's death. We're making videos for whoever needs them, really. So it's a fairly busy, busy business. Luckily, I've got enough staff to keep that going while I'm away. But it's tough not being there. It's, you know, I've got to be there to steer the ship, and I'm doing that remotely. So they're at work when I'm going to bed here. So sometimes the nights are very late. So it's double exhaustion. Are you able to put any of your cameraman skills to work, either documenting the floods or for other purposes while you're here? I have a lot of drones in the UK, but uh, I've brought a small one out with me here. and That's been an invaluable tool. I can, I can use that to check the levee banks and things very quickly. Uh, There's such a big area to check. It takes a couple of hours, you know. With a drone, we can fly that around very quickly and find areas that we need to go check and whatnot. Yeah, those skills have come in handy in a slightly different different way. I, I wish I had more time to document this, but it, it's just it's much to do. What does a typical day on the farm look like at the moment? Normally we have roughly 100, 120 cows on adjustment here. So we're mostly growing feed and whatnot. Um, but those cows, we had to move move them back to their owner's place. Uh, luckily we did that within a day of the place becoming cut off. But uh, our day-to-day kind of routine now is just monitoring flood banks, which we have a good few kilometres of. They're a serious business. They they, they seep. Um, they you know can form cracks or they could have rabbit holes in them. Uh, and any one of those uh, could cause a catastrophic event if, if they let water through. That we could end up with a six foot, ten foot, even twelve foot wide hole in there, which would uh, 
which could potentially devastate our <laughs> our area that's not flooded. Um, so it's monitoring those. It's pumped with pumps going, which are taking the seepage away. The flood bank is is good. You know, it, it does what it says on the can, but it needs constant maintenance. But they do weep. They, you know, they seep water through. Um, and you, you can't take your eyes off of them. And it's a constant worry because we're, we're effectively, our five acres of haven is held held up behind, you know, at point six foot of um, flood bang. And if that were to break, the, the place would become inundated within minutes. How long do you think you'll be uh, on the farm for? Flood banks have broken near us, um, no doubt. Parts of our flood banks are going to be in need of repair. So the second stage of what we're going to be doing is looking for damaged areas. Our fences are full of uh, weeds and wood and rubbish that's come down the, the creek. Um, God knows what we're going to find. And we've lost a lot of crops. Really, the next step is waiting for the water to go down to a point that we can check everything. Uh, and then that's what we need to do, which is going to be fairly extensive. It could be a month before I even think about going or even longer. It's going to take time for everyone to get past this. And no one thought this flood would come. You know, 2011 was bad, but this is this is equally bad. Now it's like, well, it's going to be a race to make sure you're ready again, really. If we've got this current weather pattern hanging around, uh, you really can't take your eyes off of it now. That's Oxford's Will Caddy, who's in Kerrang East, protecting a family farm from the floods. Speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth next on The Country Hour. We'll move away from floods and hail, but we'll still talk water. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. The key anniversary is set this week with 10 years since the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was signed into law by then Prime Minister Julia Gillard. The anniversary is being marked with a key speech being held at the National Press Club in Canberra with our reporter there, Kath Sullivan, uh, can tell us more. Kath, welcome back to the country hour. G'day, Was, and happy MDBP legislation anniversary to you. Certainly is a mouthful. Given the day, who's who's talking and how's the anniversary being marked today? Well, today we're going to hear from Andrew McConville, who's the Chief Executive Officer at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Um, of course, the authority has the task of implementing the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which I see the, the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has referred to today as the most important piece of water policy in Australia's history. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan sets out how water is shared in Australia's largest river network, and $13 billion of taxpayer funds has been set aside to see this plan implemented. Marking that anniversary today is Andrew McConville, who's only appointed CEO of the Basin Authority earlier this year. In fact, it was in the dying days of the final parliament, um, the former Water Minister Keith Pitt appointed Mr McConville. He'd previously worked as a lobbyist with APIA, the oil and gas lobby group. Today will be a chance to hear from him almost Sort of for the first time, really. Yeah, coalition appointee now working under a Labor government working on at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is an an organisation that hasn't been without controversy. What are you expecting to hear from Mr McConville today? We've seen a little excerpt of his presentation where he's going to focus heavily on the role of First Nations people and the role that First Nations knowledge can contribute to 
management of Australia's rivers, basically putting in case to say that First Nations need to be more involved or, or managers need to listen more to First Nations. Of course, the oldest living cultures certainly knows a thing or two about how to survive on this driest continent. So I think he'll really press that point. He's also going to refer to CSIRO modelling of river inflows and the impact that climate change will have on the the Murray-Darling Basin network, pointing to the probability or or one probability that the rivers could see a 30% reduction in inflows by 2050, which is coming around fast enough. That's something he'll, he'll look to highlight. And we're hoping that he might give an update on the amount of water that's still to be recovered or reallocated to the environment in the river to come from they're called Sidland projects, but we know that some of these projects like the Menindee Lakes and, and Yanko are running well and truly behind. And we're hoping that we'll get an update on those figures today. So an Andrew McConville address at the Press Club. Tanya Plibersek's written a few pieces marking the 10-year anniversary today. I've noted Tony Burke, former Water Minister, has been doing the same. How do you think other areas of the basin and different people who have been involved of the in the development of the basin plan will be marking its 10-year anniversary today? Well, some of them, unfortunately, will be marking it with flooded crops and flooded homes. Um, I guess it's cruel, Warwick, that the system's in flood at the moment and we're talking about managing the system so that it can survive in years of drought. But, uh, look, you don't have to go far to find a detractor of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. There's plenty of people who think that it doesn't go far enough And there are others who say that too much water has been um, taken out of the consumptive pool or taken out of industry or farming to go to the environment. Yeah, I'd imagine not a lot of cakes marking this anniversary. (laughs) Kath Sullivan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Woz. That is our Parliament House reporter, Kath Sullivan, speaking to you there. And looking up at the television, uh, I can see Andrew McConville is about to take the stage right now. So if you did want to go and watch that key speech on Murray-Darling Basin issues, you can certainly do so now on ABC TV or catch up on it later on iView. And you can certainly, if you have to skip away from the country hour, you can certainly catch up with us on our podcast feed as well. If you'd like to, just Google Victorian Country Hour or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be able to find your way there. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Alex Darling in the newsroom for us today. Good afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news, an emergency warning remains in place for flood-affected Mullamine just over the border in New South Wales. Residents wanting to evacuate will be escorted to a relief centre in Daniloquin at one o'clock this afternoon. Local pub owner Sandra de Oliveira says the community is concerned but has been preparing for several weeks. This morning, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced $50,000 grants for flood-affected New South Wales small businesses and not-for-profits to be jointly funded by the state and federal governments. $90 million repair works have begun on some of Victoria's most badly flood-damaged roads as Regional Roads Victoria enters the next phase of its flood recovery program. RRV Chief Paul Northey says the first package of works is about delivering longer-term repairs to the most flood-affected roads and keeping communities connected to vital supplies and services. In coming weeks, parts of the Hume Freeway, Goulburn Valley Freeway, Western Highway, Midland Highway, Princess Highway West, Stiglitz Road and the Great Alpine Road will also be repaired. In the past five weeks, nearly 80,000 potholes have been repaired, while 525 roads remain closed statewide.
Meanwhile, Victoria Police has issued a critical road safety alert this morning as the state enters a high-risk period for death and serious injury. Eleven lives were lost in as many days this time last year, and police are concerned about history repeating as traffic volumes increase towards the end of the year and hazardous driving conditions continue. 222 people have died on Victorian roads this year so far, 24 higher than the same time last year and significantly up on the five-year average. The poor health of Australian male truck drivers will cause more than 6,000 worker deaths and $2.6 billion in lost productivity over the next 10 years, according to new research. The Monash University report has also found failing to improve driver health could create nearly half a billion dollars in healthcare costs due to work-related diseases or injury. Program lead associate Professor Ros Isles says the transport industry stands to benefit from taking action to improve the health of the workforce. The member for Mali in northwest Victoria has welcomed funding promises from both of the state's major political parties to fund childcare in a small wheatbelt town. Murtoa will receive funding for the much-needed service regardless of who wins Saturday's election, after Labor promised on Sunday to build one by 2025. Ann Webster says it's a start, but Birchip, Bort, Kahuna, Pyramid Hill, Rainbow and Wedderburn are all still without childcare. And the Rural Doctors Association has slammed both major parties, saying they have been disappointingly quiet on rural health. The coalition has promised $10.2 billion in election promises for health and Labor $4.5 billion, mostly to upgrade and construct new facilities. President Dr Rob Fair, however, says workforce shortages are crippling rural health services and there needs to be a clear plan to increase the health workforce. And Warwick, for more news, you can visit abc.net.au slash news. Thanks very much for that, Alex Darling, there with regional news headlines. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Time to check in on the weather forecast now. Keris Arndt is a senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau. We can take you through the details. G'day, Keris. Hey, Warwick. Uh, it's one of those interesting periods, actually, looking at the forecast rain maps that the, the Bureau provides at least for the next three to four days, there, there's not a lot there, and I'm trying. To, I'm struggling to think of a four-day period we've had lately without much rain. Quite refreshing, isn't it? Yeah, I know it's a bit different. Um, still a lot of water around, obviously, um, and rivers are still running very high. But uh, yeah, the skies uh, don't appear to be opening for a little while, at the very least, as we push very close to the end of spring. Um, the temperatures are still well below for today and tomorrow, kind of uh, anywhere up to 10 degrees below the November average, so it's still pretty chilly uh, with those westerly winds keeping going and just some, some really light shower activity through, mainly through southern parts, um, kind of mostly through West Gippsland and then the northeast ranges today, but uh, really, um, as you say, not not much on the, on the radar for the next few days, which is, yeah, quite refreshing from my point of view anyway. <laughs> well, r- run me through it. How's the rest of today and into tomorrow looking? Yeah, so we'll see those showers today kind of contract down to the coast as the night goes on. Uh, it's still going to stay pretty cloudy everywhere and uh, the wind's uh, kind of holding up and gradually easing uh, as we get as, as that front that went through the last few days is going to move away to the east. Um, so we'll see the westerly winds start to drop out. Tomorrow looks pretty similar, although without as much wind and as much shower activity. Really just very light stuff um, about southern parts of the state tomorrow. Um, uh, not not really warming up yet though. It stays pretty chilly uh, and pretty another pretty cloudy day. Once we get to Thursday though, we start to see some clearer skies, um, some fog around in the morning. Probably not cold enough for frosts really um, on Thursday morning. 
but we should see the sun come out, uh, especially through northern Victoria during the day, and temperatures climbing up a little bit back into the into the low to mid twenties. Um, so getting closer to what we expect for this time of year. Uh, and then Friday's looking a lot more spring-like with pretty pretty sunny skies and uh, warmer conditions as as some normally start to set in ahead of the next system that's due to come through on Saturday at this stage. And what that does one, a Saturday one look like? Yeah, look, compared to what we've seen last time when we're talking about the next system to come through, this one doesn't look that exciting, which is, again, refreshing. Um, so we'll see some, some winds develop ahead of, the, ahead of the front, pretty standard northerlies, uh, getting a bit gusty through the day on Saturday and some showers and thunderstorms moving across the state uh, with the front as it goes through. The last few systems we've had have had a really good link to the tropics and have been quite dynamic. So they've been, you know, we've had a lot of big storm activity, lots of rain, wind. This one doesn't seem to have that. So whilst we will see showers and storms, um, at this stage there's no real indication of anything particularly severe um, as it comes through. And then it'll push through some slightly cooler air and just... uh, showery activity through the south on Sunday, not a huge amount of rainfall, and then gradually kind of easing into next week. So apart from that one system on Saturday, it's quite a prolonged period of um, quite quiet weather, Laurie. And when is that rain, I suppose, given the dry days before it, people are going to be out trying to do as much as they can. When's that rain likely to arrive on Saturday and move across the state? Yeah, at this stage it looks like we'll get showers and thunderstorms developing just ahead of the front um, and it looks like that's kind of during the afternoon through western Victoria moving to central parts kind of late afternoon and then into the east in the evening. So uh, kind of dry conditions at least until late Saturday morning at this stage statewide. Brilliant. Anything else we need to know, Keris? Don't think so, Eric. It's it's nice to not have much to talk about for once. Yeah, we, we like it like this at the moment, don't we? <laughs> In the drought years, we were getting frustrated by it, but right now, we'll we'll take it. Thanks for the update. Thank you, Keris Art, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the forecast. There, as I said, a relatively settled few days ahead, which I think is something that we all need, isn't it? Hey, coming up on the program, you're going to hear from the Canadian farmers. Uh, about, well, a lot of issues facing their farmers in terms of, uh, of what they're paid and, and how they're doing in, in that part of the world at the moment. But this idea is floated in that interview and it interested me. I wish that each label of food had a pie chart and explained the slivers, how big the sliver is for each uh, component of the food chain that worked to get that loaf of bread on the shelf and into someone's grocery cart. So a pie chart on food saying who's getting what out of that loaf of bread, say how many cents or how much percentage is going back to the farmer who's going to the what's going to the baker and what's going to the supermarket and any middlemen in between, transport operators, etc. What do you think of that idea? On the text line on 0467 842 722, uh, Tom uh, says, Hi Warwick, a pie chart explaining the breakdown of the price of food could I imagine, be highly embarrassing for some of uh, the supermarkets given their tight-fisted attitude when it comes to the prices they offer their suppliers, says Tom. Gavin says, Warwick, the pie chart statistics person and label sticker marker would have to go on the pie as well. More fingers in the pie, says Gavin. I like the way you think, Gavin, as well. Keep the text coming. Do you think it would be a good idea to show who's earning what out of what 
if a particular item of food is being sold, a pie chart label on food. That coming up on the Country Hour. But before that, let's talk about a major university in Victoria. Cost cutting or a better offering to students? The University of Melbourne is undergoing a restructure and as part of the changes, the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences is being merged into the Science Faculty. Professor in residence at the Dookie campus, Tim Reeves, told Tamara Clark he believes the change will benefit students. The School of Agriculture and Food will have more resources than we than we have at the moment because um, we have another school um, uh, around ecosystems and forestry which will be merged with the School of Agriculture and Food and it'll actually, you know, instead of putting less resources into agriculture, in fact, be a lot more resources going to, into agriculture and that, of course, will, you know, benefit both our, our teaching and our research. At Dookie, we will be going ahead as per normal and hopefully, in fact, with additional resources. What do you think those uh, additional resources might look like? At Dookie campus, one of the advantages we have is we've got a 2,500 hectare farm. And so the students that we have come and live on campus. They live study, work together, they have all those interactions with the with our commercial farm, but also with the agribusiness in the region. One of the developments that we're certainly um, hoping is going to be coming underway is, the, is more accommodation for students on campus. And the other thing that we have, you know, have done recently in the last few months is um, had quite an influx of new staff. Um, we've actually put on about 12 new staff this year and um, we um, have for example the Victorian Drought and Innovation Hub uh, based at Dookie. So we're seeing this opportunity um, for regional uh, students to be better rather than uh, reduced. What brought about the idea to merge the faculties? It was a case I think of what's the best way forward in relation to putting additional resources in, in sort of getting the dual look. I mean, the, the real challenge that we see in agriculture is how we can produce more, um, but how we can do that sustainably and look after our environment. And so it makes real sense to be, you know, putting an agriculture and food school together with a school that's looking at, you know, the greater landscape ecosystem, putting forests forests into that because after all, you know, farms are set in catchments which include both farmland and um, and natural environments and so getting you know, being able to teach students that yes, we need to increase productivity but also we need to be looking after ecosystem health is absolutely critical. As I sort of say to the students at the global level is, you know, um, how can we feed the world without wrecking the planet? The university looked for those broader opportunities for students in both teaching projects and then ultimately um, research and said this makes a lot of sense. That's Professor in Residence at the Dookie campus, Tim Reeves, speaking up the idea of a restructure to Tamara Clark. But as you've already heard um, in news bulletins in the program in, in recent days, not everyone's happy, particularly with the closure of the University of Melbourne Veterinary Clinic as well. It's 16 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Uh, Warwick Long with you. Let's go overseas right now. Grocery prices in Canada 
are increasing at the fastest rate in 40 years. They've jumped 10% on the same time last year, outstripping the rate of inflation. Kath Sullivan spoke with the President of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, Mary Robinson, to get a sense of farmers' competition concerns and the state of agriculture in that part of the world. We're seeing Canadians struggling to pay for groceries. You know, the, this is uh, we're seeing the highest prices in, in probably 40 years. So what the Competition Bureau has decided is they're going to just launch an investigation and have a look to see what's going on. Uh, and after they do that, they're going to um, see if there's uh, more diving they need to do. There's certainly, you know, consideration that some of these um these impacts on pricing could be because of extreme weather or higher input costs or Russians' invasion of Ukraine. Um, and we certainly have seen supply chain disruption. So there's a lot of details, a lot of moving parts that could explain why we're seeing these staggering increases in grocery prices. Um, but uh, they're also going to be having a look to see, um, is, is there... A requirement for more competition and is there something government should do to create a better environment to uh, to allow competition to creep into the grocery uh, the grocery realm because what we do see in Canada is quite an amalgamation of power. How many retailers do you have and what percentage of food produced in Canada is sold domestically? So we do we do definitely produce more food than we can consume, just like Australia does. Uh, and we also import a lot of food that we can't uh, produce. Like we do not grow bananas in Canada, as a, a you know it, it snowed here today. So uh, we definitely have a climate that limits uh, the the variety of foods that that we can produce. So when uh, when we look at Canada, I think it's fair to say that uh, probably five or so retailers control in excess of eighty percent of the of the grocery scene. How are the grocery prices reflected in the returns for farmers? Farmers are the uh, the foundation for all of the food uh, that we eat and all of the economic spin-offs, all that value add you talked about, uh, all of that that happens. If we don't have robust primary production, we don't have any of that. Uh, and unfortunately, as many of us do sell on a commoditized market and we're unable to differentiate, differentiate ourselves in those marketplaces, it leaves us being paid whatever the world price is. So when we look at, for example, a loaf of bread, uh, if you were to, I, I always want to see a pie chart. I wish that each label of food had a pie chart and explained the slivers, how big the sliver is for each uh, component of the food chain that worked to get that loaf of bread on the shelf and into someone's grocery cart. Because I think if uh, people could understand the level of investment and commitment on the part of primary production uh, in comparison to the value, the uh, the bottom line, the payment to them, it's staggeringly small. So as we see these incredible price increases at the grocery store level, as I said earlier, there are so many different components to that, potentially. Um, but what we do know on farm is that we've got incredibly escalating costs, whether it's uh, in, in eastern Canada where we farm. Uh, we rely ahead before this year. We have relied heavily on uh, nitrogen coming out of uh, Russia. And that certainly is going to change. So when we look at how that's going to impact one of our biggest expenses on farm, that's really disconcerting. So we've got uh, fertilizer, fuel and labor as being some of our biggest expenses on farm here. And uh, certainly with the the change in the global situation we're in, those prices and availability of those items has changed drastically.
Would you say it's never been so expensive doing business as a farmer? Uh, we say with great confidence that the crop that we put in this spring, which would be April and May of, of 2022, is the most expensive crop we've ever put in the ground. I say to people, instead of us being at the front of the casino, putting our, our dollar bills or coins into the slot machines, we're in the back room now with the, the guys wearing the sunglasses trying to, you know, make a go of it at high stakes poker. So the, the risks are greater, uh, the potential reward and the potential loss is greater as well. That is Mary Robinson, who's the president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, speaking there with Kath Sullivan. Just on the text line, this one says, was the pie chart idea is a fantastic take oats. Processors don't like paying $300 a tonne for milling oats, yet rolled oats on the shelf are over $5,000 a tonne. Sure, there are processing costs in between, but there's a pretty big margin there. Who is getting that large slice of the pie? Not the grower, who is a very important link in this chain. That coming in on the text, you can keep your thoughts coming in 0467 842 Might want to tell me how much you'd pay for a Furfy tank because we're about to hear about a, a record price paid there. Just before we do, though... A quick update. This is coming right now from New South Wales. Japanese encephalitis has been identified in pigs in the Murray region on the New South Wales-Victorian border. JE has caused two deaths in humans earlier this year, and authorities are very concerned about the risk of mosquito-borne diseases on workers, particularly in the Murray region this year. Here's Agriculture Minister in New South Wales, Dougald Saunders, speaking about the latest outbreak. Yeah, look, at this stage, what we know is that there, there has been a detection of JE in three young female pigs in that Murray River region. There were some clinical signs that were, were shown, um, i.e. Um, abortion and stillbirth over the last couple of weeks um, as part of an ongoing surveillance for the virus. Um, the good news is we've had no detected cases of JE in, in people, in residents so far. Um, but of course, in that Murray River area, we're encouraging all local community members to take measures to protect themselves. Uh, and that means, you know, doing all the right thing as far as what sort of clothes you're wearing and applying repellent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also um, making sure you're vaccinated against the virus too. That is Dougal Saunders, the New South Wales Agriculture Minister, speaking about the situation for Japanese encephalitis with uh, two pigs being uh, detected in the Murray River region with the virus. So it could be a long spring, summer, autumn period for that virus. We'll keep an update on how things are moving there. Let's talk about the latest record. I've been talking about this for all the hour too. Let's let's talk about it now. An old furfy water cart and tank that's been living in a paddock, to put it nicely, in Beechworth for decades has sold at a clearing sale for a record $61,300 last week. Furfy water carts have in recent years become collector's items. The horse-drawn water carriers were made in Shepparton and were a common sight on farms from the late 1800s and also in war zones as well. Clearing sale manager from Kevin Hicks Real Estate, Chelsea Mackay, told Annie Brown that she was shocked by the final price. Yeah, well, I had a, had a phone call from the vendor um, just saying that it was part of an estate and they needed to um, move some stuff on but probably didn't have enough for their own sale. Um, she didn't really know much about the history of the tank, um, only that it was had been sitting on the farm for years and years and that they... Um, wanted to sell it. We had mentioned that we hadn't seen one with the, the furfy pump on the front um, but had sort of no real indication as to value at the time. Yeah, we, we then spoke to a couple of 
uh, local collectors who all said, oh, no, that'll be very, very sought after. We, within the first 24 hours, it jumped to from um, 10, 15 to 25. Um, so we went, okay, people, people are keen. Then over the course of the week, it went to 35, 36, I think it was, on the morning of the last day. And then the last half hour just went crazy. So final price was $61,300 for a furfy water cart. What can you tell us about the water cart itself? Uh, the water cart was, uh, the, the transport was on, was had seen better days, um, but the, the tank itself was older. You know, you could see that it had been sitting out in the paddocks for quite some time. It had a bit of moss and that sort of thing growing on it. Um, the tank isn't necessarily the draw card, it was the pump, the surfy pump on the front, the main draw card, because so we've been told they're very, very rare. What went through your mind when you saw the final price <laughs> jump up in that last <laughs> little bit? Surfy collectors are crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just, just astounded. Like I, I knew that it was going to make good money, but, yeah, that just sort of yeah blew us all out of the water. Uh, you had previously sold um, furfies before at clearing sales. What, what were you usually getting before then, or what was sort of the highest price that you saw for furfies before this? Furfie tanks always sell well. Um, there's a lot of variance in them depending on what sort of end it is. Um, we did sell one in Echuca Village a um, number of years ago for record at the time. That was $26,000, and, yeah, that that was um, a big price at the time. A standard tank can, you know, an end can sell from anywhere from 800 to 1500 just on its own. Uh, the taps, the handle, they always sell for a couple hundred dollars each. So Furfies are becoming more and more collectible every year, but, yeah, still nothing prepared us for this one. But what made it worth more than $61,000? Furfy collector and Shepparton's Furfy Museum curator Josh Powles says this tank was so valuable because it came with that original pump that you don't often see. Look, with the way Furfy collecting is going uh, and the new collectors that are, are coming on the scene, I'm not terribly surprised, but it is a huge amount compared to anything else that's ever been paid for a Furfy tank. So would you agree that this is probably a new record for the, the brand? Definitely. What was it about this this one in Beechworth that was so special that made it so valuable? Look, this tank in Beechworth had a pump mounted on the back of it. Uh, so the furfy pumps themselves are a very rare item. When a pump was fitted, mainly around the 1930s, 1940s, they introduced them. Uh, when they fitted those, it more than doubled the price of the tank for the farmer to buy. So that made it a, a very big outlay compared to just buying a normal furfy tank. Um, apart from the, the pump itself being rare on this particular model, the tank ends that the pumps were fitted to had a special bracket, and these brackets were only produced on the 1930 and 1942 model ends. The 1930s, there's a few of them out there, but the 1942s are very hard to come by. Right, so it was an incredibly rare find, I guess, in terms of, of furfy carts and tanks. Uh, very, very rare and very significant. And, look, it just shows that there's still things sitting out there in paddocks that people don't actually realise 
the significance of. Ain't that the truth? That's Josh Powell's Furfy Collector and Shepparton's Furfy Museum curator speaking there to Annie Brown. The new owner is a Victorian but wanted to remain anonymous, especially when you got a 61,000 Furfy tank. Uh, head online to have a look at the pictures of the record Furfy water cart at abc.net.au slash rural. I was doing that just before. <laughs> Market time, let's go to Wodonga in Leanne Dax. Good afternoon, 1,088 cattle sold to the usual buying group, however not all operated or operated fully. Quality was quite mixed and buyers were extremely selective over all categories, causing some big fluctuations along the way, with buyers struggling to find that base price. Overall the market was 25 to 50 cents cheaper. Veal, 430 to 546. Yearling trade heifers, 380 to 460. Feeder heifers, medium weight, 360 to 450. Feeder steers, medium weight, 430 to 490. Trade steers, 425 to 512. Heavy steers fed the best, $4 to 492. Bullocks, 370 to 411. Heavy heifers with shape, 370 to 405. Cows, the heavy end, 330 to 352, and the middle run of leaner types, 240 to 274. Leanne Dax, MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's go to Nicole Varley at Shepparton. Good afternoon. Well, we had 610 exports of that, 295 were cows, and 410 trade cattle were yarded. Feeler numbers declined and there was very few cattle that ticked all the boxes for domestic processors or local butchers. large proportion of the young cattle went back to the paddocks. A few pence but no sailed, which floored some of the producers. The vealers to the trade reached 515 cents, while restockers paid to 550 for the lighter weighted calves. Yearling steers ranged from 429 to 528, to average around 473. The yearling heifer portion 410 to 520, averaging 464. 400 to 500 kilo steers, 406 to 438. Feeder portion made to 450. The 500 to 600 kilo C3, C4 steers reached 455. 600 kilo plus bullocks, 380 to 450. There were a few pens of well-covered beef cows. The dairy cow numbers declined significantly compared to the previous weeks. Heavy beef cows made from 305 to 372 to average around 355 for the D4s and the dairy cows 240 to 326. This is Nicole Valley from Shepparton. Thanks very much for that, Nicole. Let's see if we can fit in Ballarat Sheep and Lamb Market Reports with Shiana Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb supply was similar to a week ago with 25,500 drawn for very light lamb sold, 8 to 15 dearer. Light trade lamb sold, 6 to 12 better. Medium trade gained 2 to $4 a head. Heavy trade were firm to 3 dearer. Heavy export lambs were in limited numbers, but more weight offered this week, selling to 8 dearer. Competition from store buyers was much stronger, with lambs back to the paddock under 18 kilos sold 50 to $155 a head and over 18 kilos, $141 to $188. Lambs to the trade, 18 to 22, sold 147 to 203, 22 to 24 kilos sold 186 to 218, and 24 to 26 kilos sold 215 to $244 a head, with an average range of 840 to $890 cents a kilo carcass weight. Export four score 26 and over kilo lamb sold 243 to 276 with a wide range of 850 to 910 cents a kilo carcass weight. One agent still selling lambs and 11,000 sheep still to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Oh, we got there. Thanks very much for that, Shiona. That's it for the country hour today. We'll be back with you and a full election special tomorrow on the program. Join us then.